Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Alright guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Tragedy of Cinema. Today, I did not release what we were going to be discussing on social media like I said I would. So, this is going to be a total surprise to some of you. Cold open. This is going to be episode 15. I'm your host, Jimbo, and my co-host is... Terrence. He's looking a little dapper today. He just got off work. So today we are going to be discussing the beloved classic... Are you ready? 
Should we not tell them? No. <laughs> the Princess Bride. Yes, I know a lot of people would be excited about this. this I know a, I am. This is a great movie. Just great so you know, movie. I did I didn't know either. Uh, yeah. I knew this like driving here. Or right. like, you know, uh, uh, Jimbo picked me up from work and uh, I was like, uh, so what are we doing today? Are, are we going to do uh, uh, the other uh, movie that we planned? He's like, nope, today we're doing Princess Bride. And I was <laughs> and like, he oh, excited. Right, he's like, oh, he's screaming at Walmart Park. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, let's throw this out here right now. The, on this day, we are recording this on July 9th. In 2001, The Office premieres. Oh. The British version, not the American version. Over. On BBC Two. Yep. Uh, also, today is happy birthday to Tom Hanks' 62nd birthday. Oh. Great actor. Great actor. And a wedding. The famous Mr. Rogers marries Sarah Joan Bird in 1952. That's pretty awesome. So, happy anniversary. All right, Terrence. It's been a while, but question we got time. a question. And this one's going to be hard because I'm not going to let you lose any anime. The question, I mean, I never would. Just I know. I'm never going to let you. No. By, by the Based off you know our viewer base, I wouldn't use that because like, people would be like, what the heck is that? Mm. Maybe I'll let you have a little episode not, in real not. talk and let you just go, <laughs> go to town. All right. The question is, what do you think the best book to movie adaptation is? Best book to movie adaptation. Uh, I, because The Princess Bride is based off of a book. It is. Uh, that is a book I haven't read. Now, um... I should now, now that I think about it. <laughs> well, there's uh, – so I, I do this weird thing where I – if I can help it because sometimes I'll read a book and then a movie comes out later and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I've already read the book. But uh, if I if a movie comes out and I find out it's based off a book, I will watch the movie first and then I'll read the book because nine times out of ten, you I don't want to – disappointed. Yeah, well, that and I don't want to come and jade it like, like, oh, I read the book so I already know the book's going to be better than the movie. Like everybody knows – you know, it's, it's kind of – it doesn't need to be said anymore. Like it's it happens every single time. Like oh, the book's better than the movie. You know what I mean? So I just watch the movie first. I enjoy it, have that first experience, and then I read the book. Uh, and typically, you know, they change up some stuff. But back to the question: What book to movie do I like? Um, or that I think they did the best, right? Um, right off the top of my head. Lord of the Rings comes like as soon as you said that like Lord of the Rings popped in my head and I'm not uh, before I give that as a definitive answer I'm just trying to think of some other movies. But you got to remember, there's a lot of stuff books. missing out. There of Lord is, of the Rings. and that's a that's every stuff. single you know sort of adaptation um, uh, from book to movie, and some even like deviate from like the main story, and then that's when you start getting into the territory of bad movies based off books. So I mean, you think about some of the, the top ones, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, which did that ever finish? Nope, not yet. So that ne- never finished. Um, I think the probably one of the most recent ones that was outstanding book and movie would have to be Ready Player One. Did you read the book? Oof, yeah. So, so um, I mean, they left a lot of stuff out of the I book. I am glad. But the book was fantastic. Oh, here's the thing. I'm glad I watched the movie first (laughs) and then read the book because I watched the movie and I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. And then I read the book and I was like, the book was amazing and I am glad I did not read the book first because I would have been disappointed. Right. And uh, um, probably a couple of the other ones that I read the book first and then watched the movie and probably the one that was the closest was um, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. I read that book first, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, this is like word for word. It was perfect. Actually, I will say anything that's uh, uh, 
Was that uh, uh, was that Tom? That was a Tom Clancy movie, right? What? Uh, uh, the Fugitive. Because uh, no, cause I it, don't think so. Okay, well, I know like uh, Fair and Present Danger and Fair all and Present Danger, Patriot Games, Hunt right. for Red October. Uh, those are all based off Tom Clancy novels, and I enjoyed the movies a lot. Uh, when I was young, I was a huge Tom Clancy fan. I read all his books, still do. Um, and usually, when they come out with a movie based off his books, it usually hits it beat for beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Patriot Games was one of my absolute favorites with uh, Harrison Ford. That was a good movie and a great book. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we'll wrap that question up. Um, if you guys have any comments, maybe you like a book better than the movie, or you think that we've missed one that you think should be in there, hit it, drop us a line on social media or email. So yeah, the, the direct answer for that is I'm gonna I'm just gonna go with Lord of the Rings. What was your definitive answer on there? Well, that probably was, the um, fugitive. Fugitive. Okay, yeah, really gotcha. good. All right, so here we go, episode 15. We are diving into The Princess Bride, and I know this is Laura Martin's favorite movie. And ah. Yeah, so sorry, so Laura. you better be listening. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I already texted your husband and told him, because um, back when they got married, back on May the 4th, yeah. um, I was the best man in their wedding, and uh, I asked Dave, I said, Dave, I was like, do I have to give a speech? You know, I'm the best one. No, no, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Well, the day of the wedding, you know, like they're like, here, here's a microphone. I was like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, I told him, I was like, well, you know, I told him, I said, well, I was going to, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I said, I was going to start off with marriage. Marriage is what brings us together. But I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I at least dropped a little bit of Princess Bride in there for him at their wedding. Um, so, Laura, sorry we couldn't get together and do this. You know, with just time constraints and different schedules and everything, it was hard to do. So we're going to do this without you. Not that you can do anything about it, but I hope you enjoy it. And so, since we opened how we did, we will now play the trailer. So we're doing things a little different today. No, I always play the trailer. I, 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 play it I mean, I figured since we were, like, jumping, surprising in the very well, beginning. it's going to be on the title when they go to download the episode anyway. Yeah, that's so. also true. <laughs> I tried. I was trying. I was going to do it, but... Well, I just leave it the unknown episode. <laughs> the unknown episode. The surprise. Uh, all right. So, and uh, with that being said, uh, jumping right in. The Princess Bride, release date October 9th, 1987. Budget $16 million estimated. And uh, with conversions to today, uh, that would be $36 million. Gross USA, that's $30.8 million. After conversion, that's $69.4 million. So it did very well. Doubled, at least. Uh, director, that's Rob Reiner. Writers, William Good, uh, Goldman, uh, book and screenplay. So that's that's unique. That the that's writer one of the of, first ones we've yeah, seen. That wrote both the book and the screenplay. So now I'm really interested to read the book because I'm pretty sure it, ha- it would have to be beat for it, beat. Well, it's a lot more violent, the book. Uh, yeah. We'll discuss some of it okay, later. Yeah, I guess, I guess uh, when, when it comes to screen adaptations, you do need to be, um, what, what do you call it, uh, tactful with right. certain things. Because depending on you know, and the day and the age. And rating. Day, yeah, exactly. PG, I do believe. Or um, PG, I think. Exactly. So... Uh, we're moving on to technical aspects. The runtime of this movie is one hour and 38 minutes. That's 98 minutes. Uh, sound mix, Dolby, color movie. Aspect ratio, 1.85 by 1. Camera, JDC cameras and lenses. Now, this is a new camera. Uh, and what was interesting about this is I could find pretty much nothing. Except the fact that in 2007, JDC cameras got bought out by Panavision. Um, and that was their first 
office that they took over was in London. They took over the uh, JDC main office in London, and that actually became the first office of Panavision in London. So that was really the only interesting thing I could yeah, find. we looked for a lot of yeah. stuff on that. And- <laughs> uh, did a deep dive and, like, just I could not find anything JDC cameras. If you know anything about JDC cameras, leave a comment, send an email. I would definitely like to know. That'd be cool. All right. Um, so laboratory was Deluxe USA. Film length, 2,694 meters, Sweden. Negative format, 35 millimeter. Cinematographic process, spherical. Printed film format, 16 millimeters. That's LPP flat stock and 35 millimeter. Now off to the awards. Bumble. Academy Awards, USA 1988. Nominee, Oscar. Best music, original song, Willie DeVille for the song Storybook Love. <laughs> Moving on to the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA 1988, winner, Saturn Award, Best Fantasy Film, Best Costumes, Phyllis, uh, Phyllis Dalton. Nominee, Saturn Award, Best Actress, Robin Wright. Best Writing, William Goldman. So, all, all very merited. Uh, American Comedy Awards, USA 1988. Nominee, American Comedy Award, funniest, funniest Supporting Male Performance, Motion Picture, or TV, Billy Crystal. Gotta love Billy oh, Crystal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> funniest Supporting Female Performer, Motion Picture, or TV, Carol King. Them two together. Absolutely. <laughs> now we're moving on to the Grammy Awards in 1988. They were nominated for Grammy Television Best Album of Original Instrumental Background Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television. We're looking at uh, Mark uh, Kulpfer. Heartland Films, 1987 winner. Truly Moving Picture Award. Rob Reiner, director. Hugo Awards, 1988 winner. Hugo Best Dramatic Presentation. Rob Reiner, director. Uh, William Goldman for the screenplay and novel. National Film Preservation Board, USA, 2016. So Winner. Fairly recently. Yeah, so very recently. Uh, they won the Na- National Film Registry for National Film Preservation Board. Okay, so they were just the winner of that. Gotcha. Uh, Toronto International Film Festival, 1987. Winner, People's Choice Award, Rob Reiner. USC Script Award, 1989 nominee, USC Script Award for William, uh, William Goldman, screenwriter, Arthur. Uh, Writers Guild of America, USA, 1988 nominee, WGA Award Screen, uh, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, William Goldman. Young Artist Award, 1988 winner, Young Artist Award, Best Young Actor in a Motion Picture, Drama, Fred Savage. Synopsis. Moving in. (laughs) A a grandfather reads his sick grandson a story about a farm boy who would do anything to find his true love once again. This movie, man. I'm telling you. It's fantastic. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the cast of this. Uh, Peter Falk played the grandpa narrator. And for those of you that have not seen this movie, it starts off with a grandpa... Uh, with a sick grandson in bed and uh, the mother. And then when he starts reading the book, there's a whole bunch of other cast of characters. So the first oh, three yeah. I'm going to read is the one from outside of the book. And then, yep. we'll, then after that, it's going for all the characters inside the book. 
So as I said, Peter Falk as Grandpa, the narrator, Fred Savage as the grandson, and Betsy Brantley as the mother. Now as we dive into The Princess Bride, the book, you have Carrie Ouls as Wesley Dread Pirate Roberts and the Man in Black, Robin Wright as Buttercup, and the or better known as The Princess Bride, yep. Mandy Pantinkin, Pat Pattinkin, I don't know, I love the movie, <laughs> he is a Negro Montoya. Uh, Chris Sarandon as Prince Humperdinck. Christopher Guest as Count Tyrone Rugen. Wallace Shawn as Vizini. Andre the Giant as Fezzik. <laughs> Great performance. Billy Crystal as Miracle Max. Carol Kane as Valerie, Miracle Max's wife. Peter Cook as the Impressive Clergyman. Mel Smith as the Albino. Marjorie Mason as the Ancient Booer. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Malcolm Story as Yellen, a soldier of Florin, and Willoughby Gray as the king. So I did the biography. I chose Robin Wright for this film. Um, I figured it was time to throw another actress in there because we've done a lot of actors lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her birthday is April 6th, 1966. She is best known for her roles in The Princess Bride, Unbreakable, and Forrest Gump. Did you know who she played in Forrest Gump? Is she playing for us? Jenny. Oh, okay. Um, she's okay. also in... Was she... Was she... Uh, uh, trying to figure out who she was in Unbreakable. Was she... Uh, I think she was... His wife? I think so. Yeah. I didn't really... And she's also in Wonder Woman. Oh, okay. As I think it's her mom. Or her aunt. It's one of the two. Gotcha. Yeah. That's still really cool. Um, I, th- I believe she's also in um, the Harrison Ford... Uh, What's that one that did just came out again? Uh, help me out here. Blade Runner? Re- yes. yes. 2014. Okay. Blade Runner. 20- oh, yeah. Okay. She uh, yeah, yeah. backed out of the role of Maid Marian in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in 1999, or 1991 with Kevin Costner upon discovering that she was pregnant with her first child. She turned down roles in Batman Forever in 1955 and Sabrina in 1995. Huh. And here's a couple of quotes. These heavy movies, you carry them with you. Some days when it would be great to chill and be a mom and just crash. I'm so wired. I can't turn it off. I would love to do a comedy again. It would be so much fun. Do people know that? Let's tell them. And on the state of film in 2012, everything now is escapism because that's where the money is. There is a vacuum for uh, for serious drama. The mid-budget series drama is something you don't experience anymore. Yeah, that's true. So I like, guess with all the Marvel movies and all yeah. that, you know, it's, it's all fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there. that and they, they're all these huge, like, just giant budgets. It's it's actually not – she's actually right. Yeah. Uh, you, well, you well think, it's like I said, uh, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because it's – they've lost the storytelling. You know what I mean? It's all CGI. It's all – you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get you. I know you get me. I hope the audience gets me. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's they've, they've lost. Like, something. when it is, it's far in between or it falls under the radar as, like, I'm pretty sure that we'll see in time, like, either movies that slip through the cracks or um, you heard of it but you never saw it and, like, people were like, huh, um, that will end up, you know, being, like, cult classics or whatnot. Uh, there, are some, there are some sleepers that do get recognized. Like, I, I watched Roma, um, and that was one, the last um, Academy Awards that was really good. Uh, and that was just that was all story um, so that didn't and it was very low it wasn't like a high budget or anything and so it's it's those movies that you kind of got to look into to uh, really appreciate uh, the art of film and not just let's make a, a big budget movie film kind of mm-hmm. thing yeah 
All right, we're going to jump into some facts and trivia. When asked what his favorite thing about making this film was, Andre the Giant replied, without skipping a beat, nobody looks at me. He felt treated as an equal without people staring at him because of his grand height. Hmm. When Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head, Carrie Ulls told Christopher Guest, or Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit him hard enough to shut down production for a day while Ulls went to the hospital. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> During the filming of some scenes, the weather became markedly cold for Robin Wright. Andre the Giant helped her by placing one of his hands over her head. His hands were so large that one would entirely cover the top of her head, keeping her warm. That's really funny. Andre the Giant was a massive dude. Oh, yeah, he was huge. Not to mention, um, they were filming, and I I know a lot of the filming was done in Ireland. Um, You can get cold there. Mandy Pantikin had said that the role of Inigo Montoya is his personal favorite over the course of his entire career. It, I mean, it's a, it's a great role. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Wright and Carrie Ulls were smitten with each other during filming, naturally helping their chemistry in the movie. Ulls said that he couldn't concentrate on much of anything after that first encounter with Robin. Ah, huh. oh, so lovebirds. According to the author William Goldman, when he first was trying to get the movie made in the 1970s, a then-unknown Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to play Fezzik, and he was strongly being considered because... Goldman could never get his first choice, which was Andre the Giant, to read for the role. By the time the movie was made about 12 years later, Schwarzenegger was such a big star they could not afford him. Andre was cast, after all, and the two big men had gone on to become friends. That's awesome. Mandy Pantikin claims that uh, the only injury he sustained during the entire filming of this movie was a bruised rib due to stifling his laughter in his scenes with Billy Crystal. His attempt at holding back his laughter is obvious from his facial expression during the line, This is noble, sir. In a 2012 interview in New York Magazine, Mandy Pantikin said that uh, his most famous line from The Princess Bride, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, You killed my father, prepare to die, gets quoted back to him by at least two or three strangers every day of his life. Pantigan told the interviewer that he loves hearing the line, and he also loves the general fact that he got to be in the movie, stating, I'm frankly thrilled about it. I can't believe that I got to be in The Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> then again, you know, he was known for that role. And yeah. Like when The Wizard of Oz was out, you know. Yep. Uh, Wesley and Princess Buttercup were so reluctant to end their time with the film that during their final shared scene, the horseback kiss, one or the other of them would keep requesting another take for all sorts of made-up reasons. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. Director Rob Reiner left the set during Billy Crystal scenes because he would laugh so hard that he would feel nauseated. (laughs) Rob Reiner and Andrew Scheinman recorded all of Andre the Giant's scenes on tape with Rob doing Andre's lines. During rehearsals, Andre would walk around with uh, headphones. I would love to see Andre the Giant with little headphones on top of his head. Uh, with that tape playing all the time, it worked great, and they didn't even have to loop his lines. Hmm. Andre the Giant called almost uh, everybody on set by the director, producers, co-stars, or crew boss, a technique he employed to defer to people he liked and go some way towards counteracting the way he would tower over them. <laughs> Every boss. <laughs> That's great. There really was a Dread Pirate Roberts, Bartholomew Roberts, also known as Black Bart, who operated in the Caribbean in the early 18th century. He is reckoned by many to have been the most successful pirate of all time. Very true. In order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times, Carrie Ulls and Mandy Pantikin trained for months with Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson, who between them had been in the Olympics. 
worked on James Bond movies, Lord of the Rings, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Star Wars films, and coached Earl Flynn and Burt Lancaster. Every spare moment on set was spent practicing. Eventually, when they showed Rob Reiner the sword fight for the movie, he was underwhelmed and requested that it be at least three minutes long rather than the current one minute. They added steps to the set, watched more swashbuckling movies for inspiration, re-choreographed the scene, and ended up with a three-minute and ten-second fight, which took the better part of a week to film from all angles. I mean, the, the first of all, the trainer has a stacked background. <laughs> uh, secondly, yeah, that's uh, that takes a lot of work, but I mean, it, it paid off. It was, it's a good scene. The giant rodents were created with diminutive actors inside rat suits. On the day Wesley was supposed to wrestle the main actor, Danny Blackner, he was nowhere to be found. Finally, Blackner arrived on set with a long story about being pulled over for speeding the night prior on his way home from the bar and subsequently being jailed in, uh, put in jail for a few hours for drinking after the police officer didn't believe his story about having to work as an actor stuntman playing a rat. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I gotta be there, I'm a rat. Despite his character, Fezzik's almost superhuman strength, Andre the Giant's back problems at the time prevented him from actually lifting anything heavy. Robin Wright had to be attached to wires in the scene where Buttercup jumps from the castle window into Fezzik's arms because he couldn't support her himself. Hmm. Most of the movie was filmed on location in England. England. It was also filmed in Ireland. You were close. (laughs) The castle used for this film was Haddon Hall, a fortified country house, not a castle as such, that dates to before uh, 1087 when it was listed in the Doomsday, uh, Doomsday Book. The tapestries and Hayden Hall interiors are original dating to the late medieval and renaissance periods. Mel Smith, the albino, has confessed to never having watched his performance in this film due to the painful experience involving in filming the role. Hmm. His character required him to wear colored contact lenses and unknown to Smith and the costume department at the time, he had was actually allergic to the lens solution used. This meant that Smith was in constant pain and discomfort throughout filming. Hence, he is reluctant to relive the memory. That's rough. Uh, um, also, back on the locations, this was filmed in like four different locations. Uh, one of them being Ireland and London, and I don't remember the other two. I think one. Of, there's one scene filmed on Hollywood set. Yeah. Uh, there were no shrieking ills in the original novel. Instead, once Buttercup jumps overboard to escape her captors, Vizini warns her of sharks in the water and fills a cup with his own blood and throws it overboard uh, into the water to attract them. Huh. Interesting. Carrie Ulls and Mandy Pantkin performed all of their own sword fighting uh, after many hours of training. According to Rob Reiner, the only stunt performed by Pantkin's stunt double was one flip during the chatty duelist scene. Carrie Ulls was about uh, was cast because of what Rob Reiner called his Douglas Fairbanks or Earl Flynn quality. Fairbanks and Flynn both played Robin Hood and Flynn in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Ulls would later spoof their performances in Robin Hood Men in Tights in 1993. <laughs> uh, we we got to do that movie. <laughs> it's such a... It's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Rob Reiner first read the book The Princess Bride back when he was starring in All in the Family in 1971. His dad, Carl Reiner, was friendly with William Goldman and thought Rob would like, like the book. The names that Inigo... And Wesley referred to in the chatty duel sequence are actually fencing terms named after their 14th and 15th century proponents. Bonetti's defense refers to refraining from attacking on uneven terrain. Capio Sigfera refers to linear attack, the best for uneven terrain. 
Trithia Bolt refers to angular defenses and attacks, and Agrippa refers to natural sword, sword movements, which cancel out angular defenses and attacks. Andre the Giant needed an ATV to get him to shooting locations, and he was always trying to get Carrie Ulls to drive it. Ulls eventually relented, but on his first time driving it, he hit a patch of rocks as he was shifting gears, which caused his foot to slip from the clutch and eventually become wedged between the pedal and a rock. Ooh. His left toe, big toe was bent straight upward and was broken, which he tried to conceal from director Rob Reiner. Eventually, he had to confess, and they worked shooting around his swollen toe and limp. You can notice it in the scene right before Buttercup pushes him down the hill. He sits down with his leg extended because he wasn't able to put weight on the foot. In the next scene, when he and Buttercup head into the fire swamp, he has a strange hop into his step. Huh. <laughs> that, that has to be terrible. Yeah, I see Andre, right. come on, man. Come on, drive. <laughs> no, I'm not going to drive. No, I'm not going to drive. Okay. Billy Crystal used his Saturday Night Live 1975 makeup artist Peter Montagna to create Miracle Max. Billy brought him photos of his grandmother and Casey Stingle to help develop the look, and also brought an, an uncle who had similar bone structure. The Dread Pirate Roberts costume was modeled after that of inf- infamous Vigilante Zorro, only leaving out the cape as it felt it was unnecessarily it was unnecessary in the hat, as it does not suit the character. Do you ever see Zorro? Yeah, of course. The original? Both. The okay. original and the Okay, I just want to make sure. Liam Neeson revealed on the Graham Norton Show in 2007 that he auditioned for Fezzik. Director Rob Reiner scoffed when he heard that Nelson uh, Neeson's height was only 6'4". <laughs> only. 6'4"? <laughs> That's too short. Short. <laughs> Before filming, Wallace Shawn, who played Vizzini, uh, had come to understand that he was second choice for the part after Danny DeVito... Although there was some confusion about whether DeVito was ever seriously pursued, he became convinced that he was wrong for the role and in danger of being fired at any moment. He was extremely nervous throughout filming, and co-star Carrie Ulls, who played Wesley, noted that he was visibly sweating during the Battle of Wit scene. He said to Rob Reiner that he doesn't feel he'd get the part because he isn't Sicilian. Rob assured him that his voice was exactly the same as Vizzini's in the book. <laughs> Mark... Knopfler agreed to write the music for this movie on the condition that Rob Reiner put the hat that Reiner wore in This Is Spinal Tab in the, uh, 1984 in the movie. The hat appears in the grandson's bedroom. It is implied that the character of Count Rugen was an adult when Nigel Montoya was a child. Christopher Guest, who plays Rugen, is actually only four years older than Mandy Pantikin, who plays Inigo. The two rival kingdoms in this movie are Florin and Gildar. These are the two uh, the names of two former Dutch currencies, the Florgen and the Gilden. Ah. The title of the 20th anniversary edition DVD cover is Ambigrum. It can be read right side up or upside down. Oh, that's cool. I've seen it. It's pretty cool. Max and Valerie, played by Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, respectively, were named after author William Goldman's parents, Max and Valerie. Inspired by and written directly for his daughters, writer William Goldman um, already had a special affection for his story. However, it spent many years in developmental, during which it gained a reputation for being unfilmable, with at least huh. two studios' heads losing their jobs for unrelated reasons, mere days after slating they wished to make the film. 
By this stage, Goldman was so disillusioned and protective of his book that he took the almost unheard of step of buying back the rights to his own story when it came available after a studio desk clearing, putting up every op, uh, option story for sale, so I had starting it with a clean slate. Huh. So the he, fights, do I? So he, uh, it's just essentially he bought that. Uh, he bought it back. He bought it back. Yeah, I mean, good for him. The fights were choreographed by the legendary Bob Anderson, who also choreographed Star Wars. Anderson was taught to fence by the great Akos Moldovani, the last man in Europe to preside a saber duel. Hmm. The grandson makes some sort of comment about every kissing scene except one when Buttercup finds Wesley lying on her bed and she jumps on top of him and kisses him. Uma Thurman auditioned for the role of Buttercup. She was deemed too exotic looking for the part. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's funny. Iocane uh, powder is a fictional poison. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was offered the role of Fezzik and was extremely interested in taking the role, but was unable to because shooting conflicted with his NBA schedule. That makes sense. That'd be cool, though. The R-O-U-S, otherwise known as the Rodents of Unusual Size, has been referenced in multiple video games, including Borderlands 2, Fallout New Vegas, and World of Warcraft Legion. That's pretty awesome, and I've played all those games. (laughs) <laughs> you know how we do this and everything's tied back to the movies we've done. Get this one. Christopher Reeve was considered for the lead role of Wesley. Oh, wow. I didn't know that one. Right? All of the main characters are introduced in the first seven minutes of the film. Here's another one. Courtney Cox and Meg Ryan auditioned for Princess Buttercup. Nice. That would be interesting, too. <laughs> yes, it would. William Goldman came up with the title of the novel based on what his daughters requested in terms of ideals for his next novel. One suggested he writes his next book about a princess, while the other suggests a book about a bride. He then coined the title The Princess Bride for a novel. Nice. Well, uh, here this is outstanding, too. William Goldman claimed, which was the writer of the book, yep. claimed that Carrie Fisher was the ideal choice for Buttercup. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> At the time of filming the movie, Robin Wright was a regular on the soap opera Santa Barbara in 1984. In exchange for allowing her time off to film this movie, they required her to extend her contract by a whole year. Oh, wow. Wow. Vizzini tells the man in black, never go up against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> Vizzini is the name of a small town in Sicily. The video baseball game in the grand, uh, that the grandson is playing during the first scene is Hardball, produced by Accolade Incorporated in 1985. It was widely available in the mid-1980s for the Commodore 64 computer system. It was a one- or two-player game. The sound was not from the actual game, but later added. Hmm. This was William uh, Willoughby Gray's final film before his death on February 13, 1993, at the age of 76. Although Christopher Guest plays a count in this film, Count Rugen, in real life, he is actually a baron. Fifth Baron Hayden Guest of Sailing in Essex in the Peerage of the United Kingdom. How do you get that title? I don't know. It's cool, though. Yeah, right? Lord Baron. Fred Savage never got to meet the lead actor, Carrie Ewells. Which is crazy. That is, right? But I guess when you're filming over there, and he's probably just staying in Hollywood. Yeah. While never started or stated in the movie, according to the screenplay, the grandson and the grandfather live in Chicago suburb of Evanston, Illinois. Sorry, Illinois, no S. <laughs> uh, this explains the Walter Payton Chicago Bears number 34 jersey worn by the grandson and the Chicago Cubs pennant and William Perry poster on the wall and the Chicago White Sox cap hanging in the room. Okay, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Rob Reiner considered a lot of different actors to play Fezzik before Andre the Giant finally got the part. One of the actors cared to play the part was Richard Kill. I'm not really sure who that is. I, I have no idea. Up. Florin and Gildar are made up uh, kingdoms, but they referenced a single historical coin called both Florin and Gildar. This is a subtle joke implying that the two kingdoms are interchangeable. Also, it implies that the film is set after the year 1252 when the coin was introduced. This, of course, is among the 1001 movies you must see before you die, by edited by Steve Schneider. And I think it's probably, it's got to be way up there, like, oh, yeah. easily top 100, top 50. <laughs> Here you go. You ready for this one? Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> Campaign for the role of Princess Buttercup. <laughs> that would be interesting, too. On the DVD scene menu, the Pit of Despair scene is referred to as the Pit of Desire. Although the film is, of course, set in a fantasy world, the mention of criminals being sent to Australia means that the year is set after 1788. The movie's poster was inspired by the Maxfield Parish painting Daybreak. Miracle Max asserts that love is the greatest thing in the world apart from a nice MLT, mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich, where the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. In the book on which the movie was based, Miracle Max states that cough drops are the only thing better than love. (laughs) Francis Trufant, Robert Redford, Norman Jewison, and Richard Lester had all made abortive attempts at filming The Prince of Bride. Buttercup says that her lover's eyes are like a sea after a storm, which is a reference to a painting of the same name by Irish painter Francis Darby in 1824. This could be a hint that the film is set after 1824. Before the filming of the famous sword fight, Carrie Ulls was riding four-wheel and accidentally ran over his foot, breaking his big toe. Blah, blah, blah. We already said that. Uh, Most characters within the fairy tale speaks in a British accent, including American actors like Robin Wright, Christopher Guest, and Chris Sarandon. The only actors who speak in American accents are Wallace Shawn, Billy Crystal, and Carol Kane. And Peter Falk reads to Fred Savage, he is drinking from a Hudson Bay of Canada mug. So for all our Mm. Canadian listeners, there you go. Art director Richard Holland said in an interview that the biggest problem filming the torture scenes was the machine in the pit of despair were that the suction cups kept falling off the straps that were on Carrie Ull's and that they would fall off Ull's head and body. <laughs> All admitting that masking tape had to be put on the suction cups in order to keep the cups on Carrie Ull's without falling off. That's funny. The movie takes place around Christmas. This is noticeable in the beginning when the mom opens the beginning uh, and the house has snow and lights on them. Also explains the Santa on the closet and why the book was wrapped up. Art director Richard Holland commented in an interview that the machine was originally based on his design for rejected rejected torture machine in the James Bond movie Never Say Never Again, consisting of a giant wheel with bones strapped and powered by sand weights that would fall off on a giant spike that gets closer and closer to Bond. When the movie needed to redesign the machine for the movie, Holland decided to have the machine powered by water instead of used cogs and wheels that intertwined to suck the life out of a person's body. Hmm. In his performance in this film, Wallace Shawn is known for a phrase that he uses during the Battle of Wits scene with Carriol's inconceivable. He used this word six years earlier during the conversation with Andre Gregory about halfway through the film My Dinner with Andre in 1981. One of Peter Falk's Columbo 1971 episodes, Columbo A Matter of Honor, features a character named Montoya. Hmm. As there is a reference to criminals in Australia, this story would have to take place sometime after Captain Cook's discovery of the continent in 1770, followed by the first arrival of British convicts in 1778. 
In the closing credits, it shows the production company as Buttercup Films. Hmm. The comic book on the grandson's shelf is Tells of the Legion of Superheroes, issue 320. Both lead actors, Carrie Olds and Robin Wright, were supporting actors in the DC Wonder Woman universe. Carrie played Henry Johns in the failed 2011 Wonder Woman TV pilot alongside with Adrian Palicki. Robin Wright played Ant- Antiope alongside Gail Gadot in the 2017 Wonder Woman movie. Both their characters were guiding influences on Diana and Wonder Woman. Robin Wright appeared in Justice League in 2017, while Carrie Ulis provided the voice for Aquaman in Justice League, The Flashpoint Paradox, in 2013, both in the DC Universe. That was a good movie. <laughs> Which one? The uh, Flashpoint? Flashpoint Paradox. Are you ready? You know who voiced the rodents of unusual sizes? Hmm. Rob Reiner, <laughs> the director. <laughs> That's great. Mandy Pantikin revealed that acting out Inigo's quest to avenge his father's murder brought him back memories of losing his own father to cancer in 1972. He said that when filming the scene when Inigo kills the six-fingered man, he felt like he had just killed the cancer that killed his father. That's deep. It's real deep. Count Rugen wounds Inigo five times before and during the period of the film. The two cheek scars he inflicted on Inigo when he was a child, sword thrust to one forearm and the opposite shoulder, and the knife wound in the stomach. When Nigo, Nigo finally gets the upper hand in their duel, he returns exactly those wounds and no more. First the forearm and shoulder, then the cheek slashes, and then finally he kills Rigo with a thrust to the stomach. Buttercup is continually referred to throughout the film, and the film style itself as the princess, even though she is not yet married to Humperdinck. However, the grandfather states that Buttercup was born on a small farm, and Humperdinck states in his speech to the people that she was once a commoner. The reason for the discrepancy is that in the novel, the law of the land did indeed allow Humperdinck to choose his bride, but that bride was required to be a princess. Humperdinck overcame the obstacle by making Buttercup his princess of a non-existent country, making her ineligible to marry him. Hmm. As you wish, is said seven times, four by Wesley, three by the grandfather. Inconceivable is said five times, and the famous line, my name is Inigo Montoya, da-da-da-da-da, is said six times. Count Rugen's death in the original novel was more graphic. After telling um, that he wants his father back, Inigo proceeds to cut uh, Rugen's heart out, even describing what he's going to, to do to Rugen, claiming that the Count had figuratively done the same to him when he murdered his father years ago. Inigo even tells Fezzik earlier on that the sound of ultimate suffering my heart made that sound when Rugen slaughtered my father. The man in black makes it now. However, before Inigo finishes cutting out the Count's heart, Rugen dies of fright. Hmm. Rob Reiner claimed the final close-up of Peter Falk delivering the last line in the picture, As You Wish, was the only pickup shot filmed in Hollywood after production had wrapped up in England. In the lead-up to Wesley's duel with Inigo, it's likely that Wesley knows that his opponent is not left-handed as Inigo wears his scabbard on his left hip, drawing his sword with his right hand. He also repeatedly gestures with that hand, suggesting dominance. Wesley, on the other hand, wears his sword on his right hip and draws it with his left. He also uses this hand to pull off his boot, and when offered Inigo's sword to uh, inspect it, takes it with his left hand, fully committing to the ruse. Christopher Guest's character has six fingers on one hand. This means that his fingers go up to 11, in much the same manner that his character Amplifier did in This is Spinal Tap in 1984. Hmm. The body count for this movie? Six. <laughs> Interesting. I was like, Wow. Uh, when Buttercup is talking to the man in black on the hill, some obviously modern houses are visible in the valley behind her. While the man in black is on Fezzik's back during the fight, one of Fezzik's lines is heard while his lips aren't moving at all. On the castle wall, Inigo says, I'll say, without moving his lips. 
When the albino is first introduced, he coughs, but his lips are moving as though he's still talking. When Wesley fights Inigo, Vezic, and Vinzini, and when he runs off with Buttercup, he is wearing gloves. They are prominent when he first passes Buttercup's face, or when his fist passes Buttercup's face, and when he descri- uh, which he describes as a warning. When he is pushed down the hill, his mask and bandana come off as he rolls, and when we see his hands again, his gloves have disappeared, and he is without them for the rest of the film. Hmm. When the man in black knocks Fezzik out and is rolling over or rolling him over, there's a large rock in the way. At the end of this shot, the rock has moved over to allow room for Fezzik's head. <laughs> Moving rocks. When Fezzik and the others storm the castle, camera shots uh, taken from their perspective, looking towards the mob and the castle beyond. The castle gates are securely shut. However, the shots of Fezzik from the defender's perspective are taken through the wide open gates. After Buttercup pushes Wesley down the hill, she throws herself down on her, after him. Towards the bottom, her sash falls off, and she's left laying on the ground. However, when Wesley goes to speak to her, she is wearing the sash around her waist once more. During the Battle of Wits, the blood on Buttercup's neck disappears and reappears between shots. Wesley's mustache changes throughout the film. Sometimes it is uneven, sometimes it is longer on the sides than at other times. Hmm. <laughs> so like when Judy Garland, too, her hair length, his, right? his mustache... In the sword fight between the Man in Black and Inigo, when um, the Man in Black throws his sword uh, down and proceeds to into his flip from the horizontal bar onto the ground level, he lands a good five feet away from his thrown sword. In the next cut, he reaches a foot away to grab the sword's handle. He's got the force. <laughs> Vizzini leaves his boat docked at the base of the road before climbing. Yet when the Man in Black arrives moments later, the boat is no longer there. In the Battle of Witsing, the knife that is near the uh, three apples moves in different shots. A He-Man figure by the grandson's headboard is standing and laying different down in different shots. When Vizzini cuts the rope at the top of the cliffs of Insanity, he cuts it very close to the boulder it is uh, tied around. Later, when Inigo retrieves the rope to lower it down to Wesley, the cut end of the rope is now several feet from the boulder. Huh. The belt and sash buttercup wears changes right around the 14-minute mark. When she meets the trio in the forest, her belt appears to be gold and braided. Worn Empire waist style under her breast, it later becomes a brown leather, uh, a leather, a brown beaded belt worn around her waist. During the Battle of Wits, when they take their drinks, a distinct pattern of stains and marks is visible on the base of each chalice, revealing that they both drank from the same prop. Hmm. On the castle wall, and Fezzik says, "Doesn't that make you happy?" Wesley turns his head to face Fezzik, but his head is still leaning away from him. And the next shot, however, Wesley's head is leaned more towards Fezzik. When Montoya and Wesley fight, the rope is wrapped four times around the rock and comes off near the side. When Humperdinck gets there, uh, the rope is around twice and comes off the back. When the princess falls down in the lightning sand pit, leaves leaves are in the sand left after she has gone under. In the next shot, when Wesley is about to follow her, the leaves are gone. In the opening scene, the camera is behind Grandpa looking over his shoulder. When he pulls out his glasses out, the book is open. When the camera is in front of him he puts and he puts his glasses on, the book is closed. Hmm. When, his grand, uh, when the grandson and grandfather argue over whether life is fair in shots of his grandfather's face, the pages of the book are flat. When the camera turns to the grandson, the top left page is sticking up and his grandfather's thumb under it. After you rescue... Uh, from the lightning sand and they are hugging in a shot over Buttercup's shoulder Wesley is caressing her face but when it cuts to a wider angle from behind him his arm is down at his side 
When the grandfather turns to the grandson at the end, he is wearing a jacket with stripes. Immediately before and after, he is wearing a plain brown jacket. Multiple items shift positions in the grandson's room. The duffel bag and hard hat on the wall behind the bedroom room or door. A scarf and a pair of roller skates on the shelf beside the TV. A t-shirt draped over the chair the grandson sits on. And a baseball glove positioned on a bat in the corner between the bed and the window. After Buttercup is taken on the boat, there is a sandbag on the starboard side that disappears before she jumps overboard. When Inigo is pulling Buttercup up onto the top of the cliff, and after and as he is pulling her up, she grabs onto her, uh, his right arm. The angle shifts, and she is holding his left arm. As Inigo and the black man are dueling, there are two large stones near the base of the steps that change positions. The vial and stopper used to contain the iocane powder shift around on the makeshift table throughout the scene. When Vizini pours the wine in the first goblet, we clearly see the wide shot that he pours only a tiny dollop, about a tablespoon. When we switch to the close-up shot, the goblet is full. When Buttercup pushes Wesley down the hill and she falls down after him, when they both come to a stop, Buttercup ends up several feet further down the hill than Wesley. The movie then cuts to a scene of Humperdinck and then back to Wesley and or to Buttercup and Wesley. However, they are not shown to be right next to each other. At the end of the movie, Grandpa is wearing his tie backwards with a narrow end in the front and wide end in the back with a backside of the wide end showing. Buttercup's hair and shadows on her face uh, during the mat- match of wits. When Wesley and, and Nigo and Fezzik are are on the wall before storming the castle, Wesley head changes position from leaning to the side and straight up between shots. When Wesley is fighting the rodents of unusual size, you can see a techie by the tree step in and out of the picture. When Wesley is fighting the rodents of unusual size, he punches one in the head and then you see the, uh, the, head, uh, the hands pull the headpiece back on and straighten. During the fight with the Rouses in the Fire Swamp, when the Rouses uh, attack Buttercup and bites her dress, you can see the silhouette of a crew member hand holding the dress of the Rouses' teeth. When Wesley is wrestling the rodents of unusual size in the Fire Swamp, the tube which shoots the blast of fire is clearly visible before the Rouses set ablaze. Clear landing pad in the first fight scene when they jump off the rock. The landing is elevated and one can see the rubber mat ripple as they land. The bag can also be seen when Nago and Fezzik want, uh, walk to the edge to look down as Wesley's climbing up. Prince Humperdinck tells Buttercup his entire model will escort them on their honeymoon. She questions this as he had promised to send her four fastest ships after Wesley. Yellen, the captain of the guard, excuses himself from the room, bowing and saying, Your Majesty, Humperdinck is still only a prince at this time and it is before his father's death and we refer to as Your Highness. Majesty is only for kings, queens, emperors, and empresses. When the giant and Montoya go to the edge of the cliffs of insanity to look down and see if Wesley's still climbing up, the last rocks they step on flatten indicate that they are made out of dense foam. When Wesley and Buttercup come out of the fire swamp, Humperdinck rides up. Buttercup gets behind Wesley. When the camera is in front of them, Buttercup is behind Wesley's right shoulder. When the camera is behind them, she is behind his left shoulder. When Wesley and Vizini have the Battle of Wits, Vizini uses the correct term goblets for the pewter vessels that contain the wine and iocane powder every time, except for the very last time before they drink, when he calls them glasses. Vizini mentions Australia's convict colony during the movie. This may seem uh, anachronistic, since the movie has a medieval setting, but this story is fantasy, not history. In fact, it is being told as a fairy tale from a grandfather to his grandson. In the novel, this was just one of many intentional contradictory clues about when the story takes place.
Prince Humperdinck correctly identifies the iocane powder after smelling it, even though the man in black had earlier described iocane as odorless. However, the fact that this is odorous is likely why he bets his life on it to be iocane powder. When Inigo, Vizzini, and Fezzik kidnap Buttercup in the woods, Inigo looks like the car- uh, like a cardboard cutout, but in fact, he can be seen to blink. He's apparently just standing really still. When Inigo hears Wesley's cry of anguish when the latter is subject to the highest level in the machine by Humperdinck, he explains that he knows the cry was made by the man in black because the latter's true love is marrying someone else later that day. But Inigo has no way to know that Buttercup is the man in black's true love. When Inigo is explained why he is looking for a six-fingered man, he says how the man had his father make the sword and he is holding, but then returned to get it and demanded to be sold for one-tenth the price. If he came to get the sword, why didn't he take it? Hmm. When Wesley was trying to climb up the cliffs of insanity, there was a real easy way they could have made him fall. All they had to do was throw down rocks at him, especially Fezzik, who could throw huge boulders of rocks. You know sure, what I mean? sure, yeah. <laughs> How could Wesley have known that Buttercup wasn't actually married to Humperdinck? He was nowhere near there at the time. When Fezzik leans uh, Wesley on the castle wall, the wall moves. Hmm. <laughs> That's fine. Obviously, stunt performers, one with a mustache, when Buttercup pushes Wesley down the hill, then follows him down. Princess Buttercup's dress doesn't have scorch marks after it is burned in the fire swamp. When Dueling and Ego and the Man in Black sometimes have two shadows. When Wesley and Ego and Fezzik storm the gate guarded by 60 men, Fezzik is set on fire, but in multiple shots where he is far away, you can tell it's a dummy. When Inigo jumps against the door to get at Rugen, the whole wall moves. Clearly, it isn't a real stone castle wall. Really. When Inigo meets Count Rugen for the first time, it is just after Humperdinck and Buttercup's wedding, which is at night. Yet a window behind Count Rugen clearly shows it is day. Obviously, stunt writer for Fezzik in the final scene. When Fezzik carries Buttercup aboard the ship, he is clearly carrying a dummy. When Fezzik is being suited up to climb the cliffs of insanity, the front of the boat gets caught on a rock, revealing that this is not made of wood. Hmm. When Fezzik is climbing the cliffs of insanity, on the long shots, obviously he's carrying dummies on his body instead of Inigo, Vizzini, and Buttercup. Fezzik obviously being pulled up by the cliff by a wire. In the fire swamp, the, fir- fire, uh, the first flame spurts ignites Buttercup's dress despite being several feet away from her. While climbing the cliffs of insanity, Buttercup's arms alternate from down at her sides during the wide dummy shots to wrapped around Fezzik's shoulder. It would be impossible for her to move her arms from around his shoulders since her hands are tied. Mikhail Rugen tries the first thrust of his sword into Nigo after Nigo pulls a dagger from his stomach. And Nigo blocks the thrust, and if paused, you can see Count Rugen's sword bend considerably when the cut looks, uh, when the cut looks at him over Nigo's shoulder. When the camera shows Wesley screaming in pain on the table, you can see modern silver fillings in several of his molars. In the King's Palace, Inigo battles four of Count Rugen's henchmen. He stabs all four of them, yet there is not a drop of blood on his sword. Later, while battling Count Rugen, his sword suddenly has a lot of blood on it, but this is before he has stabbed Rugen. Meanwhile, Rugen's sword has blood on it from stabbing Inigo until it all disappears in one shot after and he's fighting with a clean sword. When Humperdinck confronts Wesley in Buttercup's bedroom, Wesley stands up and points his sword at him. Notice, however, that when Wesley raises his sword, the camera cuts away for a couple of seconds to show Humperdinck's shocked expression. But then they cut back to Wesley, shows that the sword positioned exactly where it was left before cutting away to Humperdinck. The couple-second interval was more than enough time for Wesley to have raised his sword to full height. When Inigo is being nursed back to health by Fezzik, his wet hair changes drastically between shots. In the final scene, in the close-up of the grandfather saying, As you wish, the wall color is different from the color of the wall in the wide shot. 
This is because the close-up was a pickup shot done well after the original scene was shot. Count Rugen is kicked after being stabbed by a nigo. He falls back against one of the dining hall tables, and his sword slides out of his hand. In the next shot, however, just before he hits the ground, he is holding his sword again. Inigo confronts Count Rugen and four attackers while Fezzik holds the man in black. Inigo kills the four attackers and chases Rugen. When Fezzik returns to find the man in black after breaking down the door for Inigo, the bodies of the four attackers are no longer in the same position that they were when Inigo killed him. All right, Terrence, go ahead and give me your review of this movie. This movie is great. Um, I've watched this many times. So... Uh, like I've said in a previous episode, uh, when I worked at Family Video, there's a couple of movies I would, you know, uh, play be able to, yeah, play play over and over again. Um, Back to the Future was the first one uh, that we talked about, and this was another one. Now, this one I always, I never, never minded this movie to be in the background because <laughs> it's 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 hilarious, it's fun, it's highly quotable, and people walk in the store and be like, "Oh, hey, Princess Bride!" Like that, it's a movie you you don't get tired of it's uh especially if you're a fan of comedy it's a must-see if um you're a fan of like it's just a must-see all around i mean it's it's got a lot a lot of things encompassed in this movie uh the acting is phenomenal the it's just an on-point movie yeah it's called um, classic for a reason just there's one. there's a couple things i love about this movie one in the guy that uh, william saw that says uh, inconceivable yeah. He hates that. If you go to a convention or something and ask yeah. him to sign it, he, he just he just he hates it. <laughs> I mean I guess it's probably what he's best known for, you know, that or the T Rex yeah. from Toy Story. You know? Oh I know, but, right? Uh, that and when when Andre the Giant starts rhyming in this movie, then he's like, Does anybody want a peanut? <laughs> I just lose it every time because it's so hilarious. I right. love this movie. Um, I've seen it a lot of times. Um, and I always sit down, no matter where it is, and I, I can enjoy it. I can laugh. I'll laugh at the same thing over and over again. You know what I mean? Even though I know it's coming, oh, and, yeah. I, and I can probably memorize. You know, I haven't memorized. I just love it to pieces. Um, such a great movie. So yes, it's a definitely must watch. Um, remember, you can join us on our new Facebook page, the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast uh, Group. Uh, you can reach us at thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com. We're on all your podcast outlets. Um, all of them. All the players, yeah. Finally, we can say that. Um, if you have one that, uh, if you listen on one, well, I don't know how you listen on it if we're not on there, but if you think of one that we're not on, uh, let us know. I'll try to get it added. Or if you have a friend go, hey, I checked X podcast and I couldn't find <laughs> it, then we'll be like, all right, well, right. Um, we'll do our th- best. Again, thanks for listening. Um, uh, we've got I've got several notes done on several different episodes coming up. I'm not really sure. It's going to depend on a couple of uh, guest uh, schedules and timing when they can get here. So I'm not going to say which what the next movie is. Um, so it's going to be a play by ear. Um, I know. I think next Wednesday we will have a special in studio guest doing a uh, either Child's Play or The Nightmare on Elm Street. I do That'll know be that. Fun. I do know that. So everybody, stay tuned and. I think that this episode is coming down to a close and uh that's a wrap that's a wrap and And cut. cut